Yeah. I've had a wonderful month of praise and, and worship, and, and man, it is so good to see our young people participating in worship. Uh, good to see you, Bill. Uh, Barry, good to see you as well. Haven't, haven't seen you in a bit. Glad you could join us. Um, and glad you're, doing, you're feeling better, Bill. Um, I want to thank uh, Nick, Tyler, Nate, and Giovanni. Um, thank you for being brave. Um, if you don't know who they are, Nick is the gentleman who prayed. Giovanni's right here. You, he had a prayer for us too. And Nate and Tyler, uh, they, they prayed for us as well here during worship service. This isn't the end of Family Church. Uh, we're going to continue to do this. And I think we're going to continue to do it more often. Um, so this morning, I want to conclude our, our, our series for Family Church with Saul Paul Victim of expectations or vic victor in identity? I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me before I begin and pray one more time. Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have not just to come to you, but just to honor you and to praise you, to express our gratitude. And Lord, we look forward to seeing how you are going to continue to work through your spirit in our midst. So I pray that you do just that. Open our eyes, the eyes of our minds and our hearts for us to see you. And lift up Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, growing up in, in little old town of Lancaster, Massachusetts, there was a college that was adjacent to our property, a college that no longer exists. Well, yes, it no longer exists. A college by the name of Atlantic Union College. For those of you that have kept up with that soap opera of what's happening to AUC, it will reopen its doors again. We can have that conversation another time. But there was always the question, where are you going to college? By the time we got to our junior, senior year, where are you going to college? And in my mind, I thought, man, I want to get up and move out of Dodge. I need to get out of here. I don't want to stay at AUC. I, I need to leave and if you are an older individual uh, and you remember your, your teenage years and you're thinking, I just can't wait to leave the house, right? Some of you are shaking your head. Yeah. Where are we going to school? I will, I, as I began to think about my options, none of these were an option for me. Some of you can, can uh, identify who, which colleges are, are, are here on the screen, but uh, best colleges and universities by U.S. News and World, and World News, they have ranked the top five colleges today, and I would venture to say it's pretty much the same, it hasn't changed since I was a kid. It's 
Number one, does anybody recognize this one? This, the orange shield. Anybody have a wild guess what college that is? Or university, excuse me? You, that's Princeton. That was number one in their most recent number one colleges of, it's located in Princeton, uh, New Jersey. Can anything good come out of New Jersey? Well, I guess... Robert did. And Steve. Okay. <laughs> All right, I digress. So number two came is in Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT. Right across the street, almost literally, you have number three, Harvard. Okay, you can't say Harvard. You got to say Harvard. You take the T to the and you park your car at Harvard Square. So Harvard's number three, Stanford, Connecticut. How about this last one, number five? James? That's Yale. Okay, that's Yale. So what's interesting about this is that all the top three are... I'm going to call it the top three, which is Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. They were originally all founded under the auspices of a seminary. They were all religious institutions from its inception. They were all colleges that were started with, to put an emphasis on theology. They wanted to promote more spirituality. We're not going to talk about where they are today. But here's the thing. Here's what each of these colleges have written in their logo. Okay? Veritas, which is Latin for truth. So Harvard was established in 1636. Yeah, let that sink in a little bit. Okay? And um, there's a, then you have Yale that came about 40 years later, or 70 years later, almost. They, they, be, they came into existence because they didn't like the way that Harvard was teaching their doctrines. And so Yale was instituted... And what it says there is light and truth, lux et veritas in Latin. But do you notice that there's a Hebrew? You know what that says? No? Well, translated, yes. But you're, you're, you guys, most of you will, get, uh, will see this and you'll understand. Umen and Thumen. If that sounds familiar, those are the two stones that the high priest used or had in their vestments that would determine which direction God wanted the people to go. Umen and Thumen, which was light and truth. Now, Princeton was established in 1746, if I'm not mistaken. And inside... Notice how there's books, right? Truth, books, there are religious. We can say that these are the, potentially Bibles. This is a Hebrew Bible. We could probably say that, but that no one knows for sure why they had that. 
But here in Princeton's logo, you have Vet Nov Testament. Latin for Old and New Testament. They started because they, they didn't like the way that either Harvard or Yale did not accept the results of the Great Awakening that was taking place in the 1700s. They all have a history of being born out of a spiritual environment and or necessity. Uh, Princeton, as a matter of fact, is Anglican in nature. And that's how it got its start. So it leads me to the question, then, who was Saul? You're thinking, how does these two things mesh up? When you think about people who went to Ivy League schools, most of those individuals, either a daddy has money, or they are really, really smart, or they come from a lineage of individuals who, they have, there's a legacy of those individuals' families who go to, have went to that school. Legacy is what those five schools pride themselves to have. They want to know, they make sure that you know that you're going to Princeton or you're going to Harvard or you're going to Yale or Stanford or even MIT. It's a badge of honor. Right? So Saul also had a badge of honor. Said, who was he? Scholars think that he was born between 5 BC and 5 AD give or take, the 10-year period. They don't know because there is no account. There's no records. There's nothing we can understand. And based upon that, if you do the math real, quick, real quickly, even if he was born 5 AD, that would make him about 28 years old when Jesus was crucified at the earliest. Or he, was, he may even be older than Jesus. But let's, let's give him 28 for the sake of argument. He was 28 years old when he saw Jesus being crucified. Or we can say that he probably was there. Why? Who was he? He came from Tarsus. Did you know that Tarsus was nowhere near Israel? Tarsus is a city in what we call today modern-day Turkey. The same environment, the same place where we have the, the churches in Revelation. They're all found in modern-day Turkey. It's no wonder Paul was a Roman. Because he was not born in Israel, though he is of Jewish descent. But he was born a Roman because of where he was born. And we know it, Saul of Tarsus, because he calls himself, I was born in Tarsus. I grew up there. I was a disciple of Gamaliel, and we know that because he says it himself also. And who is Gamaliel? Gamaliel, in, in Jewish traditions, there are three major teachers. They call them rabbis. Hillel, Shammai, Shammai and Gamaliel. Gamaliel is Hillel's grandson. 
there's lineage based on who, who he was learning from. Why? Because in, in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, it says, I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. He was, not only did he put his credential of his historical and understanding and theological prowess, listen, listen to how he described himself. In the book of Philippians, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is the law, is in the law, blameless. If I introduced myself to you in a little bit more modern language, how would that come across to you? A bit arrogant, huh? He was a poster child. I would say he was a diva. Okay? I look at what I've done. This is where I come from. This is what I've accomplished. This is how much I know. Mercy. You know, sometimes we do the same thing. Sometimes we say, oh, I'm an Adventist, a Seventh day Adventist, I'm a remnant. It might be true, but I say, I say, say this sometimes to a, a very important person in my life, just because it's true, you don't need to say it. Paul had all the credentials. I mean, look at himself. He says, I was blameless. That's the language that perfectionists use to describe their goal. To be blameless, without sin. That's what he's saying. That's how he was until. But something really astounding happened. The Bible tells us that in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 58, more specifically, Something was happening, and this is where we find Saul being introduced to us in the Bible. There was this man who professed to be a disciple of Jesus, and his name was Stephen. And Stephen ended up being on trial for following Jesus. They said that he was a blasphemer, and they, everything that he believed was not true. And so what they did was they condemned him to death because they didn't, the religious leaders of that time did not accept Stephen. And so what did they do? They took their, once they took him to the pit or the area where they were going to be stoned, stoning him, they took off their outer garment and they deposited it at Saul's feet. And the Bible says, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul began to get a reputation of somebody who was not friendly to the Christians. 
We could call that in today's day, modern day language, he became a bully. I mean, a real bully in the sense of the words, because in, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and 3, this is what it says. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Whose death? Stephen's. He, in other words, he approved of it. He put his thumbprint of his stamp of approval on, on that stoning, on that killing. And they scattered, who's they? The, the new Christians, they scattered throughout the regions. He made havoc of the church, entering every single house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And so he did this day in and day out. Can you imagine, as a parent, my daughter came home to me one day and she said, something happened at school. Holy anger came out and took hold of me. And I said, who's this kid? I mean, you think about it. What happened to her doesn't come close to what was happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ in the early stages of the early church. It's like having your family member being ripped from you because they believed in Jesus and now they're being thrown into prison and or even maybe being stoned. Because one person had the authority from the religious leaders to do that. Until Saul, with the mission to go and to continue the persecution. Now, it was no longer localized in Jerusalem. It, it spread and it went to the outskirts because as a result of his persecuting the Christians right there, they fled for their lives. They went and immigrated to different parts of the, of the world. They went to different parts of the country. And they left their houses, went and set up shop somewhere else, and he went after them. And on the, his way to Damascus, he falls off his horse. Literally. Chapter 9, verse 5 says... Why are you persecuting me? Is it hard to kick against the goad? No, that's actually, I read that wrong. Jesus is saying it is hard to kick against the goad. What's a goad, you may ask? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question. This is what a goad looks like. It's a stick that's got a sharp end that is used to prod the calf or bull as they're under that yoke to prod them to move forward. And so Jesus is telling him, why are you re being reluctant against the prodding that's being done? Roundtable discussion time. What internal evidence do you see where Paul is kicking against the proverbial goad? Does that make sense? What internal evidence from the story 
do you, do you believe that he was kicking against the, the goad? If Jesus is telling him that he's kicking against something that is prodding him, something happened. Does that make sense? You understand the question? If you don't understand the question, raise your hand. I will come by. I will come by. If you... No, you guys don't understand the question. Let me rephrase this in another way. Is there anything that was happening to Paul or Saul that would lead you to think that he was resisting Jesus? Okay, because that kicking against the goad is resistance being manifested against the one who's prodding you to move. Does that make sense now? Does that make sense? I'm looking at my tables that raise their hands. All right, go. And then share a time that you kicked against the goad.
All right. I think I stumped some of you, huh? A little bit? Let me ask you, before we get to that question, let me ask you this. Is anybody willing to share a time where they kicked against the goat? In other words, is there a time in your life that you can think of and that you can share that God was asking you to do something and you're like, no. No takers. All right, Sue. I was sequestered during COVID with my husband and sister-in-law, and I watched her every Sabbath study, and I listened to 3ABN with her, or maybe not with her, but I was in the sidelines, and then she said, come on, we can go over to the lake and do a Bible study. And I said, no, I would, no, I don't want to do this. Go on. So you were reluctant to God inviting you to study and the I Bible. And I knew he was telling me. You, how did you know? Because I felt it inside, but my brain said, no, I don't want to do this. Okay, cool. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? Over here, Angela. Yes, I have this experience um, where I'm living. You know, I am Seventh-day Adventist. I think like Paul, I am right. My church is the only church. Mercy. And then now, God moved some people next door to me who I don't think should be living beside me because of their, <laughs> of their lifestyle. And I said, you know, I feel like I want to move. Why did God let these people come and live beside me? These are not the right people. They, they are not Christian. And I just don't like th these type of people to live beside me. And, you know, and I, I, I happened to be giving out books one day. And I gave them the great controversy. And I gave them step to Christ and they take it. And I said to them, um, do, you, do you guys read the Bible? Are you a Christian? Do you go to church? And they tell me, yes, they go to church. They move from, they move from um, Ohio to here. And they said, yes, they go to church. And I said, you know, well, uh, you know, I kind of, not because they're going to church, God kind of, I think bring them there beside me that I can tell them about, you know, him, you know, and what I believe. You know, I don't go deep into everything about their lifestyle, but I just talk to them and I tell them. I have one day to, when they share with me who they are, I have one day to put my hands around both of them and tell them, you know, look them straight in the eye because I want them to know that. God loved them regardless of. And they, they weep before me. And they said, you know, I love you, Angela. And we not even want to move from beside you. And I said, you know, look at that. Uh, I didn't want them beside me. And there I could be able to hug them and tell them regardless of, Jesus loves you. Amen. 
One more. Here. Uh, please, please. Thank you, Maya. Thank you for sharing. Uh, so besides right now. <laughs> <clears throat> so when <clears throat> I met Danielle, she wanted to come to church. Okay. And I said, there's just too much to do on the weekends. And that was the excuse that I used over and over again for quite a few years. And I fought against it. <clears throat> and it wasn't until, and by the way, when I did work on the weekends, I had to do it again. Because, well, you know what happens when you work on the Sabbath. And it wasn't until God showed me what life was going to be if I continued to keep him out of it. Is when we started coming back. And I finally dropped to my knees and mm. came into him. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. There's a common denominator with all these stories with Saul. Thank you, Maya. The answer to the question in the what, what internal evidence, right? What evidence? What do we see in the Bible where Paul is kicking, where he is reluctant? to follow God's instruction. Because if you look at the wording on the previous verse, why are you persecuting me? First of all, we know that Jesus is saying, you're persecuting these people, you're persecuting me. Again, we see a, a, an illustration of the same concept that to the least of these that you do, you do unto me. It is hard. This is a statement. This is not a question. I always thought this was a question that was mislabeled. But no. I went back and I looked at it. I said, no, Jesus is making a statement, a profound one at that. It says, it is hard to kick against the goat. And so I began to think, why was Paul, why is he saying this to Paul or Saul at this moment? Why is Jesus telling Saul that he's been reluctant? Why is, he, why is he telling Saul that he's been fighting, that he's been struggling to do and obey what God is telling him to do? There's no evidence in the Bible. And then I had an aha moment. The evidence is, is missing. That's the internal evidence. What is missing? When you see persecution, there is usually resistance. Where do you see resistance in the early church in this story? There isn't any. You don't see the disciples going out in pitchforks and defend their territory. You don't see Stephen trying to run. You, you see the Christians spreading. And so Paul takes persecution outside of the city. And that's where he's going. He's going on a mission with the stamp of approval of the Sanhedrin, of the group of people that ultimately crucified Jesus. He has their approval. He has their blessing. He views himself as one of those. But here is the interesting part. Ellen White sheds a little bit more light into this as well when she writes this. 
from the book, Acts of the Apostles, page 112. The striking evidences of God's presence with the martyr, she's talking about Stephen, led, to, led Saul to doubt the righteousness of the cause he had espoused against the followers of Jesus. Do you understand what that means? The evidence of Jesus, of God's presence with that martyr created such an impression on Saul that it questioned what he was doing. There is absolutely no greater evidence of you doing God's will or somebody else saying that you belong to God when you yourself are walking with God. No one can refute that. No one can refute a personal experience, a personal relationship, a personal walk with Jesus. No one can dispute that. It will actually make people rethink their strategy. But Saul... Given the pedigree he had, and given the experience he's had with his teachers, and the schooling and the background he came from, he went back out of respect and questioned them. Can you imagine that conversation? Um, Rabbi, something's off with this. Nah, you're just, you're letting them get to you. No, seriously. He's not fighting back. I mean, if you go back to the story of the Stony Stephen, Stephen says, I now see the Son of God sitting at the right hand. And the Bible tells us that his face glowed like that of an angel. Only if you are walking with Jesus will you have that. Only in the peace that comes along with you being put in the middle of a circle or a pit, as some scholars think happened, and stones are being cast on you. I'm not talking about little, you know, garden stones that you can pick up with you. I'm talking about massive 25, 35, 45, 50 pound stones being hurled at you. And you being okay. That had a severe impression on Saul. Saul goes to, eventually makes his way to Damascus. But his reputation precedes him. Which reputation is that? The one who is now the converted individual or the persecutor? The persecutor. Ananias says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority to bind all who call on your name. So even Ananias who was deemed a disciple, he questioned even God as he's telling him, listen, 
You want me to go see this guy? Do you know where, he, where, where he's been? Do you know what he's done? Again, I bring out the question. We have done the same thing. We have looked at people and have mis, wrongfully mislabeled them and misguided judgment was placed upon them. Oh, don't get me wrong. We shouldn't all, there's a, certain, there's a certain balance here that needs to be done, but to Ananias' defense, you have the number one killer of Christians out to get you. And now you're being told to go and anoint him? Really? But it's not just there. Check this out. After he spends some a time, he was eventually baptized, and then he makes his way to Jerusalem. All of this time, he's in Damascus, and before he gets to Jerusalem, this is what happens. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Are you kidding me? But they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. Oh, mercy. I don't blame them. It's very easy for us to see People that have had a negative past and all of a sudden come to church and start a new way of life, we often say, wait a minute. Nope. Something not right here. We don't know what kind of goad they kicked against before they got here. We don't know what kind of experiences God had been prodding them to get to church. And then when they come... They are met with resistance, even though God had told them to be here. We need, we need to be careful that we don't follow that example. We need to be careful that we don't do the same things. Granted, there are times that we need to say, we need to test the waters, but not test the waters so much that there's no room to be a part of the group. This was the resistance that he found. Eventually, because of persistence, Paul made his way into the, if we, into the group of disciples. I was going to say club, but club's not the right word. But look what happened. Let's look at Saul before this. He's on the fast track to become a ruler in the, in the Sanhedrin. He has the Ivy League diploma in experience and stamp of approval. Now, he's no longer a part of that. And look what he goes through. He's kidnapped. He's beaten. He's threatened. He's arrested many times. He's accused of lawsuits. He's interrogated, he's ridiculed, ignored, shipwrecked, and don't forget, he was bitten by a viper. Okay? Who wants that experience? Who said me? 
You want to be bitten by a viper? We'll talk. Had to be my son. Love you, buddy. Complete different paths. And many times when we look at the path of a Christian and we look at the challenges and difficulties, we prefer to take our own way because we can have control of the outcome rather than be faced with all of these uncertainties. Oh, but I love, I love what happens next. You see, um, Steve, can you help me, for, help me for a second? I don't want to drag this and scratch it up against the, the floor. This is good. You see, how much would you say this way, Steve? 10, 15? Yeah. All right. 10, 15 pounds. When we look at potentially at God's calling, we feel the weight. We look at the weight and we say, I can't do that. And God says, yeah, you can. He tells us that take my yoke upon you for my burden is what? Light and easy. And then we're like, okay, I, I can do that. You know, this is Jesus and this is us. And we begin to go down that road of relationship with God. And we begin to learn new things and we begin to identify things in our own lives that need to change. I don't know. And as we're going through that, we think to ourselves, you know, I think I can do all that. And trials come. And we begin to get a sense of confidence. And we look at, at what we have just done and we say, I can do that. I think I'm pretty good. And we start to wonder, can, can, I can take more. And we get confident. But then all of a sudden, when real tr trials start, we break. We break because we can't handle the truth. We can't handle the stress. We can't handle 
Let's bring it into our church setting. We can't handle the ministry that God has given us within the local church. That we can't handle the pressures that we're going to face. But who has asked us? Who has asked us to stand? Jesus. So in all of these things that Paul, this Paul now goes through, none of which he ever planned, he's standing there, but at the center is Jesus. And so with Jesus, he tells him, I want you to go to Galatia. I want you to go to to the Philippians. I want to go. I want you to go to the Thessalonians. You're going to suffer some setbacks. You might be kidnapped. You might be beaten more than once. You might be threatened. You might be accused in lawsuits. Heck, you may even be bitten by a viper. I don't know. But you know what he said? At the very end of his ministry, he was brought before Agrippa, the king, and his wife. You know what he said? I think myself happy. Are you happy today? Are you going through things right now that you're experiencing sadness, disappointments, frustrations, loss? And when you look at your life and you're saying, what does God have in store for me? Can you say these words, I think myself happy? Some of you may. I know some of you will not, because I've never asked this question that had 100% say, I'm happy. The reality is, he was happy, because he knew that the choice that he had made was not to allow himself to be a victim of his own prejudices, to be a victim of his own biased, skewed mentality That because he was chosen, he was better than everybody else. Because that was the education he got. And very often, and I will say this, as a pastor, I have heard that we are God's chosen people as a remnant, and therefore we have the truth as if we are the sole owners of truth. Paul chose, he chose Jesus 
He chose Jesus because there was no more strength left in him to fight. In those three days that he spent agonizing by himself without eating and without drinking, he contemplated on everything that was happening and then he associated all the prophecies that they were looking for the Messiah and he connected them with Jesus and he said, okay, I'm yours. And you know what else he said? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. He's writing from a jail cell because he knows he's about to be killed. His appeal to Caesar did not work the way he probably thought. However, he was okay with that because he said, I have kept the faith. Finally, there's a crown that is laid up for me. Laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. What day is that? The second coming, the resurrection. He knew that Jesus was coming for him. He knew that everything he endured, everything he went through, all the negative experiences that we would say, I'm not doing ministry. Let me, let me just get on a soapbox a little bit. How many of you want your kids to become a pastor? My point exactly. <laughs> Why? You want to save your child from the hardships, from the headaches, from the heartaches, from the stress. According to the Barna Group, this is the second hardest profession in the country. You don't want that for your child. You don't want them to go through those these experiences do you want your daughter to go through that do you want your son to go through that do you want your children to go through that nobody does but if it's God who's calling why not that's why Paul can say I can think myself happy and he's going to give me a crown of righteousness on that day. But not only me, but all who have loved his appearing. That's what made him a victor. That's what made him the greatest missionary of the early church. The greatest apostle of the early church. Because he chose Jesus. Despite the circumstances. You and I, we go through our life and we do have struggles. And there are times where it seems like we're going to break, but Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you even until the end of the age. Have faith. Trust. Believe in the promises that he has given you. He will give you the strength he will give you the wisdom. He will give you the right words. As a matter of fact, Jesus told Ananias that he said, go anoint this man because he's going to appear before judges, kings, and he will be a, a witness of me to all the world. My challenge to you this morning is simple. 
Do you want to become a victim? Or do you want to become a victor? To become a victor, there's sacrifices. There's, and some of these sacrifices are not pleasant. I will tell you straight up. But I can tell you the rewards are everlasting. The rewards, there's nothing like it. And Rick will agree with me, having been a pastor, there's no greater feeling than you bringing somebody to Christ. I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to ask Jesus, Lord, just give me one. Just give me one. That one person to bring to Christ. And you will begin to see the blessing it is of having made the right choice.